Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, God, we pray that uh, you just allow us to continue in worship, uh, focusing on you, on your greatness, your majesty, your awesome power, your mercy, your love, all that we know about you, all that you've revealed yourself to be. God, may we come to appreciate uh, all of that more as we live our lives, as we try and walk in a way that honors your presence, your place in our life. Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have you as an integral part of their life, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts this morning, that you would uh, reveal yourself and that they would respond in faith. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. December 1903, something happened that would forever change the world. After many failed attempts, many uh, tries, many different approaches to the task, finally the Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. And this momentous moment would transform all that we know in terms of travel, in terms of information. Uh, it would eventually lead, obviously, to you know landing on the moon. All sorts of things would grow out of this huge moment in history. And excited about it, they sent a telegraph to their sister back home with the message that says, we have flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. See you then. And Catherine, their sister, was so excited. She knew how much work had been invested in it. She had a, a, an idea, a concept of what this meant for the world and, and how this would change things. And so she ran down to the local paper, to the editor, said, I received a message from my brothers. Look what they've accomplished. And the editor looked at it, glanced at it, and said, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. He missed the import of that moment. He was focused upon the sentimentality of that relationship, that connection, but he missed the momentous reality that had just been communicated to him. One of the first people to know about it, and his minds were on the little things. When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about Christ, when we talk about the realities of what happened 2,000 years ago in that manger in Bethlehem, how often do we miss the big thing? How often do we diminish the momentous moment that that is in favor of sentimental things, little things, cute things? How often do we miss the power of who, we, who it is that we're worshiping and the sacrifice that he made, not just on the cross, but in that manger? This morning, as we continue in 1 John, we come to a place in his letter as John's beginning to wrap it up. And he's, he's wanting to leave this congregation with a truth that will find expression in their day-to-day -day lives. He's wanting to, to, to return to where he started. He started with the idea of Jesus as the incarnate one, the, the word who has been expressed, the communication of who God is. And now as he's wrapping up, he wants to come back to this concept of this idea because John understands as we need to understand that our faith 
our walk, our outlook, our perspective on life, our relationship with others are all encapsulated, are all contained in how we view Jesus. And it's important that we have a correct view of who he is so that we can walk in him, so that we can relate to him, so that then we can properly relate to everything else in life. If Christ is not in the center, if Christ is not right in our life, then nothing else is going to fall into place either. Nothing else is going to find expression the way it's designed to find expression either. Not our loves, not our likes, not our families, not our work. Nothing will be what it's supposed to be if Jesus is not in the center. So let's take a look at what John has to say here, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5. He writes, Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John here is communicating his, his own testimony of the one that he's seen, the one he's encountered. John was one of those disciples who was, who was there from the beginning. He, was, he likely had walked and ministered with John the Baptist. And so when Jesus shows up there at the baptism, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John was likely there. And in experiencing that moment, hearing the voice of God himself, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John caught a glimpse at that moment, something he wouldn't fully understand for for years, something he wouldn't respond to really for years, but he caught a glimpse of the power and the majesty of all that Jesus is. And it changed him. It can't help but change us when we see Jesus for who he really is. But it's important that we have a whole picture, an entire picture of Jesus or we don't have a picture of Jesus at all, really. If you don't have the whole picture, you don't have the correct picture at all. And John's trying to get at that. When he starts his, his testimony here with the, these words, Jesus Christ he is the one who came by water and by blood. What is he talking about there? What's he referring to there? Well, some of you may think of the crucifixion. You've heard it, that Jesus, as he died, the centurion steps forward with the spear and thrust it into his side. It says the water and the blood flow. Maybe that's what pops into your head. And that would be a good guess, except that John goes on to say, not by just the water only, but by the blood as well. He repeats it. So that's probably not what John has in mind here. What is it that he has in mind here? Well, you need to kind of understand a little bit of the background of the heresy that John's addressing. There was a group that existed in the late first century 
They would become later known as the Gnostics. And they had this perception of reality that said that the material is bad. Anything that's physical is bad. Only the spiritual is good. And so with that kind of belief, with that kind of perception of reality, you couldn't really say that Jesus was fully human, could you? If that was your belief that the physical is bad, then Jesus can't really be all physical, could you? Because that would mean he was in some way bad. And so the Gnostics began to teach that Jesus um, walked with God, but it was at his baptism that he became the Christ. And that he lived as a Christ for three years as he ministered and served. And then when he died on the cross, before he died, because death is a bad thing, the Christ left him again. Okay? And this was a, a heresy that, that was born there in that first century. And, and they were teaching this to the church that John was writing to. And John's trying to write to them and say, that's not right at all. That's a wrong perception. The physical is not evil. And Christ didn't, or Jesus didn't become the Christ at his baptism, and then not the Christ at his death. And so, what's he saying here? The water and the blood are both a part of the testimony of his deity, of his reign, of his relationship with God, of the, what he came to accomplish here. The water being his baptism, the blood being his crucifixion. Both are necessary, both are a part of his ministry, both are expressions of who he was. He was obedient at the baptism. He was obedient on the cross. And that obedience demonstrates, it displays, it expresses the heart of who Jesus is. One who is one with the Father, who perfectly obeys, who perfectly knows, who perfectly relates to the Father. Now, I don't think, I could be wrong. If you'd like to talk afterwards, let's talk. But I don't think anybody in this room holds to that view of Jesus, that he was the Christ just at his baptism and left him right. I'd be very surprised if anybody held that perception. Okay, We don't hold to that ancient heresy here in this congregation. So then what does this mean to us? What, what is it that this is trying to get across? How does this apply to us who are not struggling with that falsehood? Well, I think there's a couple things. Number one is you can't have Christmas without Easter. You have to have the whole picture. Jesus' baptism and crucifixion is at the heart of who he is. He was declared God's son at baptism. He was already God's son, but that's where God declared it very openly for everybody. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he was glorified at the crucifixion. It is finished. The crucifixion and the resurrection are what set Christianity apart. Because there were lots of myths, lots of ideas in the Greek world. We've all heard them or encountered them in various forms and fashions. But there were lots of myths in the Greek world of the gods coming down and having relationships with Women and, and having demigods and so forth. Hercules and these others who were half God and half man. There were lots of those myths. There were lots of stories of good teachers. There were lots of ideas of messiahs that were present. Pontius Pilate himself, the, the one who condemned Jesus to death, 
interacted with at least three false messianic claims that we know of from historical records. So there were lots of messiahs. There were lots of these sorts of stories, but there weren't any, and there aren't any examples of anyone who died, was dead three days, and rose from the grave never to die again. None. In all of human history, there is no other story that mirrors that picture. There's no other example of such an amazing, powerful expression of who Jesus is. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection that, that verify his claims of deity. I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Lots of people can make those sorts of statements, but until someone comes back from the dead and says, not even death has victory over me, can we say that what was expressed is true? It's the crucifixion and the resurrection that respond to our deepest need. In Matthew 1, as you're, the unfolding of his birth is being told, what's it say there? That Jesus comes to what? To save his people from their sins. He came to die. And so we need to see and understand the importance of his crucifixion. We can't diminish that. Even in this time of year when, when we're all uh, giddy and joyful and singing all these songs that we sing and, and expressing all these things that we express, seasons, tidings, and all those other things, never forget that the manger pointed to the cross. And that's why Jesus came. That's a part of who we are. It's a part of what we believe. It's a part of how we function. But the second way I think this truth that John has expressed here applies to us is that John is telling us we need to know the Jesus that we worship. We need to get as complete and a holistic a picture of him as we possibly can. Because it's our tendency to create Jesus in our image. We want Jesus in some ways to look like us, and if not necessarily look like us, to agree with us. And so we transform him. We turn him into the Dr. Phil Jesus. He's going to fix us going to deal with our psychological issues and, and those relational issues. Or we turn him into the prosperity Jesus who, who's really there to, to make us wealthy or at least to give us the best possible life now. Or we turn him into the, the post-church Jesus, that is, the Jesus that's more comfortable at Starbucks than he is at church. So that's where I'm going to spend my time. Or the guru Jesus. He's got the answers. But he's not quite God. Or to hit a little closer to home perhaps, the red letter Jesus. Where we think of Jesus only in terms of the words that are expressed there in the red letters in our Bible. And we don't realize that all of Scripture is a testimony to Him. 
the prophets who stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. The God who declares his wrath on sinfulness. The king who reigns over the nations and declares that we owe him our allegiance. Or perhaps he's the legalistic Jesus. Well, you better not cross. You see, any perspective of Jesus that we hold to that's not complete is problematic. And it's real easy to create a Jesus that that feels like he is the Holy One, that feels like, you know, I've established a Jesus that's not like these other Jesus. You know, I would never worship the guru Jesus or the, the prosperity Jesus or or any of those other Jesus. I would never worship that Jesus. I have the one who's going to hold the line and who's going to who enforce God's truth and who's going to uh, judge the nations, and he's the masculine Jesus, he's the powerful Jesus, he's all these sorts of things. And we forget the other components of Jesus, the love and the grace, the one who sees beyond our sin, the one who eats with sinners. We forget that Jesus' words in the Gospels, his harshest words are reserved for the religious, not the, quote, sinners. We need to have a view of Jesus that takes in all that he is. And that's hard. It's hard. It's hard to see that because it's not comfortable. And at the end of the day, I think most of us are really in favor of being comfortable. We like it. It makes things easier. But the truth of who Jesus is is sometimes messy. The manger that we adore and we shine the light on and we and we look at, oh, how precious this, this baby. It's a picture of squalor. It's a picture of sin. It's a picture of what man's disobedience to God creates. The glorious king of the universe, lying in rags in a feeding trough surrounded by animals because of our sin. We need to see him for all that he is because only when we see him in his humility can we truly begin to appreciate his glory. This is the paradox of John's gospel, that Jesus is most glorified at his most humiliating moment, his death on the cross. We can't leave those parts out. John goes on here to talk about the link, the relationship between the divine testimony and the historical events of Jesus' life. He says that we have the testimony of men. 
And if we accept the testimony of men, we ought to also accept the testimony of God, which is greater, which is more significant. And he says, the water and the blood, that's the testimony of men, are together with what? The Spirit. These three testify. God has merged his testimony of who God is with the historical facts. We cannot remove Jesus from history. Christ's life invites us to both an objective and subjective personal verification of who he is. John stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. He says, I was there. I saw it. I saw the sky grow dark. I heard the centurion say, surely this was the Son of God. I saw the wounds that he bore. And I testify to those today, but it's not just me. The Spirit's talking to you as well. The Spirit's moving as well. The Spirit confirms all of these things that I'm sharing. When you think about our faith, why do you believe the things you believe about Jesus? What holds you to it? Have you looked at the historical evidence? You say, I don't, I don't need that. I don't, I don't need that. I have my faith. I have my relationship. And your faith, your relationship is key. But it's not meant to be held alone. Jesus invited us to an objective appraisal of who he is. Just one quick comparison. There are 42 sources within 150 years of Jesus' death which mention his existence and record many events of his life. 42. Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor who reigned during Jesus' ministry, he only has 10. Only 10. And yet, if you were to talk on the person on the street, none of them would doubt the existence of Tiberius Caesar. None of them would doubt the existence or the work of many things that he did. But you'll find people today who will question, who will doubt whether or not Jesus even existed. We need to see, we need to look at, we need to understand the objective truths. Study to show yourself approved. Paul encourages Timothy, and by extension encourages us. We, we live in a world today where we can no longer simply accept that everybody's going to view the world the way we view it. That everybody's going to accept the truths that we accept as truth. Passive Christianity has to be a thing of the past because it's no longer going to work. As the culture, as the world turns more and more away from God, it's going to require more and more of us in terms of our knowledge of Christ, in terms of our appreciation of Christ, in terms of us living for Christ. And as we walk in that, and as we study in that, and as we dig into that, the Spirit will continue to teach, will continue to instruct, will continue to guide us. 
But we need to get rid of the mentality that somehow education about Christ is wrong. I'll never forget my first years in, in college and in the seminary. Oh, you're going to seminary. They're going to ruin you. I don't know how many times I heard that from people. Or the kinder ones. Be careful that they don't ruin you. Because there is this perception, and it, and it pervades Baptist life, there's this perception that if you begin to learn truth about Scripture and how it was constructed and how it all fits together and all these other things, that somehow that's going to make you less of a believer. But the truth is that God has called us to dig into these things together. To study, to learn, to mature in our faith, to be ready to give an account of our faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Well, because that's my testimony. I, I know it to be true. That's a great place to start. There are things you can learn. There's knowledge you can acquire to help you dig deeper. To be able to answer people. And the time for just coasting through life as a believer, it's past. We don't have time to do that anymore. We have to be sharing. We have to be communicating. We have to be relating to people around us. And I'm convinced that as we do that, then we'll experience what John is, talks about here in verse 12. We'll experience life the way we were intended to. Because we'll have a confidence. Next week we're going to talk about confidence and conviction of where we're at and what we do. How do we get to that confidence? How do we get there? Through the life that Jesus Christ brings. That we experience as we get to know Him, really know Him and all that He is, what is life that John's talking about here? It's the satisfaction we receive from Jesus because what? He is the only thing that will satisfy a hungry soul. And John Chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. What's he say to her? He says, you offer me a drink of water. I'm offering you a drink of water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. And she says, where's this water? That'd be great. So I don't have to come back out here anymore. That's not the kind of water I'm talking about. That's not the kind of water he's talking about. He is the living water. He is the water that satisfies everything that we are. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so he sent us a Savior. And we need to know that. That's who we are. We were made for relationship with God. And our souls, our very beings, remain empty and searching until we're in that relationship. 
But when we're in it, we have life. Again, if it helps, think of, think of those relationships, those other key relationships in your life. Maybe the first time you fell in love. Maybe when you had a child. Maybe just a, a really great friendship that when you're with that person, you feel different. You feel better. You feel like, man, life has meaning. Your relationship with Christ should be that and so much more. It should cause you to experience life to its fullest. He promised it. That's why he came, so that we might have abundant life. And folks, if you're not feeling that, if you're not experiencing that, there's something wrong that needs to be addressed. And I can't tell you what that is. Each one of us has our own journey. Each one of us has our own task to discovering it. But I'm telling you, if you're not experiencing Christ in a way to which your whole life finds meaning and purpose and direction, then there's something terribly wrong with your relationship with Jesus. Because He is all that and so much more. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is the Lord. And nothing really makes sense without him. A pastor named Clifford Stewart tells the story of many years ago how he had earned some money as a young man and he wanted to thank his parents for everything that they'd done for him and so he bought them their first microwave. And talking to his parents later, he said that when they opened it, they were excited. They were thrilled. They were, wow, we have a microwave now. We've entered into this instant generation. Cooking's going to be so much easier. Things are going to be so much more wonderful. I have a microwave. And they said it wasn't but just a few seconds until their joy turned to frowns because they couldn't figure out how to work the thing. They read through the instruction manual. It didn't help. They tried to figure it out, play with it. None of it worked. He says, two days later, my mother was playing bridge with a friend. She confessed her inability to get that microwave even, even to boil water. She says, to get this darn thing to work, I really don't need better directions. I just need my son to come along with the gift. Show me how to do it. When God gave us the gift of salvation, he didn't just say, here, be saved, be rescued. He gave us his son to come along with it. To show us how it works, what it does, what it means. 
So if you're talking about your eternal life, if you're talking about walking with God as we've been looking at over the last several weeks, it all really comes down to one thing. That's walking with the Son. The one who comes alongside the gift to make it clear what we're to do, who we're to be. So we come to a time of invitation. I want to challenge you as we're entering into the Christmas season to rediscover Jesus. To see him for all that he is. Not just the baby in the manger. Not just the king of kings. Not just the one dying on the cross or just the one rising from the grave. All that he is. All of that's important. All contributes to our understanding of him. And therefore our understanding of ourselves. Instead of having a, an invitation this morning, I just want us to spend some time in prayer. Prepare our hearts and minds for the Christmas season. We have Thanksgiving and then it's here. And there's going to be opportunities you have to, to share with others. People are going to be talking about what Christmas is all about. Open doors left and right to share your faith. But sharing our faith, I believe, will become much more potent if we ourselves really know who Jesus is that we're proclaiming. And if the Spirit's coming along with our testimony to share it. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads right now just between you and God. Just go to him and ask him to to help you to truly come to understand all that Jesus is this season. To share that with boldness and that your spirit would go, his spirit would go before you into those encounters that you'll have the next several weeks. Ask him to give you those opportunities to share your faith. Ask him to truly help you to experience the fullness of the joy of Christmas. Ask him to give you the boldness to share your faith when the opportunities do present themselves. Dear Heavenly Father, we come and we are just so grateful for the gift of your Son. 
May we come to know him more. May we come to appreciate the fullness of all that he is. His glory and his humility. His power and his love. God, may we enter into this season with the desire to know you and to make you known. Use this congregation. Use these individuals for your purpose, for your glory. Help us, Lord to grow deeper and deeper in our love and knowledge and appreciation of all that you are. And in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.